As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Bob Dole's with above. us now. Let's talk about markets, CIO of Crossmark Global Investments. Bob, good morning to you. Same. Let's talk about retail sales, 25 minutes away. Are we going to see that resilience in this U.S. economy, this U.S. consumer, in the data we're set to see in this hour? You just put a lot of good things, the two of you, on the table. A soft landing is like putting a thread into the needle, and the eye of that needle is shrinking. It's getting tougher and tougher. The consumer eventually will come to their knees. Um, we always see it at the low end. We all, all we see it with credit extension. Um, we, we see it. Um, wage growth is strong. How long will it stay strong? Um, and that has just fueled the consumer and it's fueled our economy. And this thing is kept on going despite all the things in the background that you just put on the table, including the lagged effects of the Fed going from zero to five and a quarter. We have not felt all of that yet. Let's unpack that. It will happen eventually. Are we seeing signs of it now? You mentioned credit. You can see it through credit, maybe one way. Another way might be to see it in the official data. We'll see that at the bottom of the hour, 8.30. Another way might be the earnings. Across those three things right now, credit, data, earnings, are you seeing a slowdown? Not really. It's all lead indicators. The coincident indicators are are positive. Some of them are getting a little mixed. It's going to take some more time to go there. We've been since the first of the year uh, saying recession starts sometimes between Labor Day and the end of the year. Still sticking with that. Think it's a mild recession, as many do, although recessions left most people's vocabulary, as you know. But where does that recession come from if you do see the strength in consumers? And a lot of people have pointed to the student loan issue. And I was reading this article, this survey by Credit Karma, and it was showing that 45 percent of student loan borrowers say that they are not going to repay. They're basically going to be delinquent for 12 months because they're not going to get penalized for being delinquent for 12 months. So aren't we basically getting a self-stimulus ongoing that will remain in place for a while? Well, it's it's been the story um, and it's lasted a little longer than many people thought. And it's still not finished, but eventually consumers will come to the realization that things are a lot more expensive, inflation's still a problem, they have no savings at the lower end of the consumer bracket, and that's a problem, and they're going to have to retrench some, or find a second job, and they've already done that. 
What's the hedge? What's the defensive play at a time when a lot of the strongest companies have incredibly high multiples and you're looking at bond yields that are not giving a consistent message? Yeah, I, I think that within the equity market, you try to focus on companies that have high earnings predictability, high earnings persistence, and are not selling at crazy prices. And that's not a whole lot of places. I like the HMOs, for example. I've not given up on tech, but I, I, I want to be careful what PE I'm paying for my tech. So some of the semiconductor stocks, uh, some of the software stocks, um, they're not so cheap. Visa and MasterCard, two names I still like. They've gotten more expensive. Uh, so you have to pick your spots. And I come back to earnings, persistence, and cash flow generation. Let's talk about the retailers then. I'm Depot at this morning, Walmart later this week, Thursday, Target tomorrow. Have they still got that pricing power? Can they keep margins pretty steady or do those margins get eaten away at? Eventually, and I think we'll see some of that like now, uh, those margins get, get eaten away. Because you see, companies can only raise prices so far. And you're already seeing consumers begin to make noise and balk and stop buying some things. It, it, won't, it won't be everything, but slowly but surely you take the edge off. We have to operate on eight cylinders to keep the thing where it is now. And if we back off to six, that's going to disappoint a lot of people with stocks selling where they are. They're well, let's highlight the winners. Expensive. Forget tech. Cruise lines, airlines. Are we at that point where we've reached consumer price intolerance? They just don't want to pay it anymore. Well, as you said a minute ago, people are flying around. We go on an airplane and, you know, every seat's taken. So we're not there yet, but we'll get there. Okay, so what's going to get us there? Because everyone's been saying this, that the consumer eventually will push back. And then they haven't. And then you go out to eat and it costs twice what it used to. I mean, honestly, this is the kind of increases that you're seeing. Yeah, so it was subtle. We had 15 months in a row of better than expected monthly employment numbers. The last two months have been below expectations. So there are cracks beginning to develop. I don't want to come across as the economy's tanking and, and, and over, you know want to be a bear overall. I'm just cautious. And I add to it, I said, all right, I'll say it again. If the PE were 14, different story. But, you know, at the peak a couple of weeks ago, I looked at my screen on trailing er earnings, 23 times earnings. When you talk about being cautious, what's the ballast? If you, you talked about your equities, is it cash? Is it going into duration? <clears throat> I, I think having some cash in your portfolio when it yields 5% is not a stupid idea. Have you been increasing it? Uh, in, in the balanced accounts where we can, in the uh, equity market neutral portfolios, we've been bringing our exposure down and therefore our cash exposure up, yes. Bonds, yeah, own some bonds. I, I, I'm not sure that we've seen the high-end yields yet, but I'd rather begin to nibble at, you know, four and a quarter than three and a half where we were not that long ago. But you think start to go out along the curve, start locking some of this stuff in? Slowly but surely, yes. Heard the same thing from Lisa Shannon over at Morgan Stanley. I mean, you think we face that reinvestment risk, rate cuts on the horizon? That will happen at some point, so I don't want all my eggs in the short-term 5% basket. Um, look, a year ago, 18 months ago, one and a half percent 10-year treasury, that was a bad deal. Four and a quarter, I think I'll think about it. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It wasn't that long ago. No. It wasn't that and long ago. And it happened ago. fast. I know, it really did, Bob. It's happening fast now. Bob, it's good to see you. Thank All you, sir. Thank you. Bob Dole of Crossmark Global Investments. Jordan Rochester joins us now, G10 FX strategist over at Nomura. Jordan, great to catch up with you, buddy. Let's just start in the UK at the Bank of England. Record wage growth. Are we bringing them back in for more rate hikes to come? John, I think that wage number will definitely make the Bank of England's 
absolutely think about raising rates at the next meeting. We think there'll be two more rate hikes this year. So we already thought there was enough data to tell them you should probably keep more hiking more. I do think the risks are that we get a weaker services CPI, perhaps not this month, maybe next month, and that the risks are actually tilted to just one hike rather than two. The idea of having two, maybe three, would require a reacceleration in that services CPI. So I always, John, think that the labour market's the most lagged indicator to track as a central banker. Rewind back two years ago, the ECB, the Bank of England, all these other central banks that were pointing out weak wages as a reason not to raise rates was actually a, a ridiculous thing to look at because you missed all of the energy and commodities inflation that was coming. And it's, it's why we are where we are today with central banks having to make up for lost time with all these rate hikes quite late on in that cycle, John. So strong wages, fantastic for those workers. Pretty difficult for the Bank of England to turn dovish with those numbers. Sterling positive or sterling negative if they have to hike more? Well, look at the reaction today. Europe sterling is the way to look at it. Sterling tried to rally and then it came back off and Europe sterling is pretty much flat on the day. If the Bank of England raised rates at 25 basis points like we expect, it wouldn't really move the needle for sterling. I think what will be really interesting is if we get some more negative news on growth. We're starting to see that in China, for example. But we're also having pretty dismal surveys out of the UK as well when it comes to price pressures. They're all turning lower. Maybe at the next meeting we'll get a better sense of whether that we will get that extra 50, so two 25s in a row. How much is that weakness that we're seeing in China bleeding through not only to the UK but Europe uh, and the euro? I think what you were saying earlier, Lisa, is spot on. There has been a little bit of decoupling. You look at the, the likes of risk on in the U.S. market, the, the move in U.S. yields. Yet, if you were to use the usual frameworks, when China slows down like this, usually it's risk off and very dovish, and it leads to um, dollar strength. And uh, this is kind of what we're seeing in dollar C and H. So that's a clear trade. We think dollar C and H gets to 750, perhaps. That's the sort of move we're looking for. We're doing it in a basket format. But it's not leading to massive euro-dollar weakness, which is very odd. And it's similar for sterling as well. It used to be if CNH moved like this, you would absolutely have to be short euro. And the reason for that is because of this decoupling. Equities are rallying in the U.S. more broadly over the past few months, and that's held up euro. Can it last? And I noticed that you actually abandoned your strong euro call recently, and you said, you know what, I actually see it being a bit weaker uh, from here. What triggers that, if not the bad data out of China and this concern around the inability to stimulate? The hardest part about FX, Lisa, is there's three pillars to consider. One is what's going on with equities, two, what's going on with rates, and three, what's going on with commodities. And for quite some time, I was leaning on that equity pillar. The, raz the, uh, the sort of rally we'd had in equities over the past few months was one of the reasons we had that Eurodollar call. We're looking for top side. We still are by year end. But in the short term, I see the other two pillars really dominating, which is the rates market says euro dollar should be towards 105. That's not a good thing where we are at current levels. And of course, with commodities, we've, we've had a much higher in oil prices. And natural gas, one of the biggest imports for the euro area energy uh, supply crisis, has perked up recently of late. So it's maybe more nervous watching dollar CNH move the way it is, default risks building up in China, low credit demand. We saw new one loans collapse that in the short term given we've not got not very little data now until we get the next cpi and nfp reports and we've got jackson hole but i think in the short term that they're not catalyst enough to boost euro i'm surprised euro wasn't on an 111 handle after that cpi report so a few disappointments with the reactions in the market and going forward over the next two weeks only jackson hole to really talk about that's not a reason to be long euro dollar but we are long euro versus Norway and we are long euro versus uh, sterling. So there are still euro upside bias in our view. Jordan, what you just described smells like eurozone stagflation. Is that what it is? 
Well, inflation's going to come down, John. It's going to come down quite quickly according to the sort of PPI and surveys. So the stagflation concerns, I think, were more last year's story. But the growth numbers, ZEWs this morning, were pretty disappointing. I thought maybe we start to see positive momentum in European data surprises. They were so weak that maybe they improved. But ultimately, the surveys suggest that it's going to be a pretty weak outlook for European growth. And my problem on that side is I'm not sure where the next stimulus is going to come from. The Fed's not cutting rates until March next year. The ECB is not going to be talking about uh, cutting rates until later next year, October, November time. China's not doing a big fiscal stimulus so far. So it, it is a combination that makes it really hard for me to see why surveys and growth surveys should really pick up. So yes, in answer to your question, it's still a bit like stagflation, but hopefully that inflation component comes down. So Jordan, just quickly, you think Lagarde is done? We do. We do think the ECB is done because we think that the, the data over the next few months will develop in such a way that will justify no more rate hikes. I think the ECB and the Fed have both introduced the skip concept and hopefully by the time we get a few more data reports that will then say we don't maybe need to hike at all. The Bank of England is in a weird place where they don't give that sort of strong forward guidance about skipping or not. Hopefully we start to see that build up as a narrative for the UK as well in the next few months too. I've got a birthday present for you. We're not going to talk about Aston Villa. OK, just going to let you go. Aww. We won't talk about the score over the weekend. Jordan, happy birthday. <laughs> so Thanks, sweet. John. Cheers, guys. I'm tearing up. Rochester and Amora. Jordan, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Lindsay Piegza, someone who has been calling for rates to be much higher, potentially even with a six handle for the Federal Reserve to get inflation under control, uh, joins us right now. She is a chief economist at Stiefel. Lindsay, what's your view on why we saw such a big upside surprise on retail sales? Well, this certainly was a stronger than expected report. And no doubt this will boost optimism that because of the resilience of the consumer, we can achieve that soft landing. But I would push back a little bit in the sense that we don't need to put too much focus on one month's numbers. What we have seen is a tremendous amount of volatility in terms of consumer activity month to month, suggesting that, yes, while this was a welcome step in the right direction, consumers are increasingly shifting the goods and services in their basket on a month-to-month basis, something that they do, something we do as consumers when we are increasingly concerned about our financial footing. So while this is, again, beating the expectations for the market, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is a trend that can continue to rise, particularly against the backdrop 
backdrop of some of these factors that prove uh, artificial support, drawing down savings, a last sputtering of state and local stimulus. We see hardship withdrawals from war, from 401ks up over 40% on a year-over-year basis. But while this will provide a temporary support, this is not an indefinite support to the consumer. So where does this fit in, Lindsay, to your view uh, that you previously had, that the Fed had a lot more work to do, that they had to get to a level that nobody was gaming out, or very few, of 6% or north of that? Well, I think this is going to make the, the Fed's job more difficult because the longer it takes for the labor market, for the consumer to show that needed weakness or respond to earlier policy tightening, the more aggressive the response from the Fed must be, thus ensuring an eventual downturn. So the notion that the fact that consumer has continued to be resilient across the first 525 basis points, supporting the notion of a soft landing, no, I would argue it's quite the opposite. That simply means the Fed will have to be more aggressive, raising rates higher and keeping rates higher for longer than investors had anticipated, suggesting that the downturn potentially and eventually will come and may be more uh, more aggressive, more, more uh, of a downturn than previously anticipated if the Fed didn't need to raise rates quite as much Lindsay, to squash out inflation. Lindsay, you said two things, raise rates higher and keep them there for longer. And those are were the ideas that people had. But some people are starting to think, OK, what if the Fed is done with how high they're going to uh, raise rates, but they are going to keep them there for longer? And that's what we're seeing priced into the market gradually with some of the highest longer term expectations for Fed funds rates that we've seen in this cycle. At what point does that cause more damage in your view? Well, I, I think it's certainly going to cause more damage. Again, the more pressure on the Fed to respond. Now, if we continue to see this type of resilience, uh, if we continue to see th uh, third quarter GDP surpass uh, earlier expectations or surpass what we saw in the second quarter, I, I think the Fed doesn't necessarily need to continue to raise rates indefinitely. But once they reach that sufficiently restrictive level, as you mentioned, we've long uh, conceded that will be uh, 6% or above, the Fed is likely going to be forced to keep us at that elevated level for some time. The Fed itself has said rate cuts are not in their base case scenario for 2023, but even 2024 remains a sizable question mark if we aren't able to see that intended result. Remember, the Fed is raising rates to tap down consumption, tap down investment, and result in a slower level of activity in order to get that more benign inflation. But thus far, the economy is pushing very hard against the intentions of tighter monetary policy. If you are just joining us, we are just uh, seeing the ramifications of retail sales numbers that came in significantly higher than expected. We're seeing the overall month-over-month -month headline number of 0.7% versus expectations of 0.4%. The control group, which does factor into the U.S. gross domestic product figure, came in at 1% from the expected 0.5%. We are seeing two-year uh, yields surge past 5%, 10-year yields and 30-year yields, both reaching the high level since October, climbing up. Uh, we're seeing 30-year yields 4.32%. Lindsay Piegza of Stiefel with us. And Lindsay, I, I really want to get your sense of what could potentially halt this spending. You were saying it can't persist. You're not going to see this forever. Some people have pointed to the student loan repayments that are going to restart in October. Do you give credence to this sort of idea that we could see some sort of tightening and, and fiscal tightening on that front going forward? 
Oh, absolutely. There's a number of factors. And remember, even with this monthly increase uh, beating expectations, when we take a step back and look at the longer term momentum, it's very clear that consumers are beginning to slow their activity. Coming out of the gate from the great uh, the shutdown, we had a double digit growth. Then we slowed to eight, six. Now we're talking about bouncing around 2% on an annual basis. So while still positive, the consumer has clearly pulled back. And these other factors, as you mentioned, monthly payments for student loans, additional housing payments coming back online. This is going to compound the pressure on the consumer. Now, there are some temporary supports that we're still tapping into. There still is a sputtering of state and local stimulus. Consumers are turning to 401ks. Consumers are ramping up credit card debt. And with the relative health of the balance sheet, meaning we paid down debt during the closure, during the pandemic, there still is some wiggle room for the consumer to expand that balance sheet. So I'm certainly not suggesting that the consumer is going to immediately fall off a cliff. But what we are seeing is these indefinite supports beginning to wane, putting additional pressure on the consumer eventually as we head further into the second half of the year. What do you expect Jay Powell to say in Jackson Hole next week, given all of this? I think one of the biggest questions that investors have is for how long? And that's really what I think Chair Powell is going to focus on. It's not necessarily how high, because it seems as if the committee is of one mind that we're nearing that terminal level. Whether it's one, two, maybe even three additional rate hikes, we're up near that that sufficiently restrictive level. But how long will the Fed need to raise rate or keep rates, excuse me, at that elevated level? I also think he's going to talk about the context of inflation against monetary policy. How does the Fed respond if we see a reversal in inflationary pressures? Is that even a scenario that the Fed is considering? And how does the committee balance the risk between raising rates even higher than previously expected, slowing the economy against the risk of of wanting to obtain that 2% inflation target. So there's a lot of questions that investors are going to be listening for, that I'm going to be listening for, in terms of how to gauge the Fed's mindset on these broader uh, broader themes for inflation and monetary policy. Lindsay Piegza of Stiefel. Joining us now on Washington and the latest developments down in Georgia, Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy. Terry, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. Always thoughtful, our conversations together. We mentioned this in the last couple of hours, and I think it's the appropriate place to start. We've got cases now in New York, in Washington, D.C., in Florida, in Georgia. Terry, how do you rank those just in terms of importance? Oh, importance? Uh, I think it's far too early to tell uh, for one reason that you and Lisa were just talking about, which is the timing of the cases. Um, you know, there's a whole, there's a lot of different ways you can slice these things, federal versus state, racketeering versus uh, 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 conspirators, all kinds of things. Uh, I'd rank them in, in order of how they're actually going to come to trial <clears throat> and to some extent, excuse me, and to some extent, it matters greatly, uh, you know, frankly, I think, whether they're televised or not, as, as you say. I mean, the closer uh, people see what's actually going on and why, uh, they're going to have more of an opportunity uh, to make up their minds on it. Terry, can you elaborate a little bit? Why is the televisation of this important? You said to make up their minds. But what do you think the outcome will be of having it very much in the public eye? I think there's just an immediacy to to television, frankly. And, uh, you know, I think we've seen that over the past uh, 60, 70 years, just in terms of how people perceive candidates and people choose candidates. So, you know, very broadly, there's that. 
but secondly, there is a uh, debate, more than a debate in the country, about whether this is uh, politicized prosecution uh, or whether there's something here. So uh, there's going to be a, an awful lot of pressure on the Fulton County DA to show that these charges are real and they're not the kind of standard splash that prosecutors do. You know, prosecutors uh, tend to go, you know, go in front of grand juries particularly. You go big, you go broad, you get the maximum you can from the grand jury. Uh, in this case, it's going to be you know, uh, did she overstep? Does she actually have uh, evidence? Uh, and, you know, and of course, the other side has a great deal to say about how to interpret the evidence. Uh, so, you know, this is going to be on a pretty big stage uh, and uh, even more so if it's the first one. Terry, there's a real question around the different poles of the political sphere right now and how people are going to respond to court cases that most of America or many of Americans have already decided about, regardless of what's happened yet. What do you think the outcome will be to some sort of conclusion of the trial if there is some sort of conviction? I mean, I'm just trying to play out the political risks here on a social level. Well, I think firstly, and I, I've said this to you all before, I think there is greater uncertainty around the 2024 presidential election because uh, you have uh, increased risk for an uncertainty about Trump and about Biden. Uh, on on Trump specifically, I think what you've got is a situation where, you know, if there's a conviction, uh, my instinct is what happens is that it accelerates this death by a thousand paper cuts process where people say, you know what, uh, regardless of Trump policies, regardless of whatever, you know, uh, movement, you know, kind of anti-establishment movement, I think exists here. Uh, it's I'd be better off with another candidate. So I tend to think the the more the prosecutions uh, start landing home, uh, the the more that the Republican electorate turns elsewhere. Right now, Terry, as you game out that political risk and you talk to different clients, what are you telling them to prepare for? What is the way that it will manifest itself if we're not focused as much on, say, debt reduction or some of the tangibles, nuts and bolts of fiscal governance? Well, I say, I say a couple of things. One is that the, uh, the, the first action in the presidential uh, primary process is five months, I think, from today. I mean, I, you know, Iowa, I think, is five months from today. So... Uh, you know, that's a very long time in politics, and there are examples all over the board about how, uh, you know, somebody that was leading in the polls today, you know, didn't win uh, different primary challenges. Uh, so, you know, number one, there's that. Number two, keep your eye on the panoply of things that are going on in Washington. Uh, you know, not just the Trump uh, matter or the Biden matter. You've got just in the next few months, you've got a, uh, I think, a shutdown likelihood, a government shutdown likelihood at 60 percent. Uh, you've got uh, probably no meaningful action on debt and fiscal, which uh, markets are increasingly interested in. Uh, you've got everything from the China economy to the Ukraine-Russia matter to uh, to think about, uh, you know, bank capital standards and all the way down to John's favorite topic, UFOs. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what we've got is a situation here where there's an awful lot of risk coming out of Washington on a variety of fronts all at once. And it be would behooves investors to pay attention to all of it, not just uh, this particular bread and circus. Terry, how did you know that? How did you know that? Terry, how real is this oh down God. in D.C. when you watch these hearings? How real is it? Which part? The UFO UFOs, part? UFOs, obviously, Terry. 
I, I, you know, the, the, the cheap and easy line is to say anybody that watches Washington uh, with regularity, uh, you know, uh, does believe in, uh, you know, the, the, that there's something out there that, it, you know, is affecting things <laughs> that isn't us. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think there's an awful lot of circumstantial evidence on the UFO matter, as there always has been. And, uh, you know, they're going to need to get to the next step to start convincing people. Terry, thank you, sir. Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy down in Washington. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Drew Redding joins us now, Home Builders Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Drew, can we start with Home Depot? What have you learned from the numbers this morning? Yeah, so Home Depot had a modest beat. Um, same for sales down 2%. Expectations were for a decline of about 4%. I mean, this was pretty much in line with what we were expecting. There's been some noise quarter to quarter with lumber and weather. Um, the key takeaway is that they reaffirmed their full-year guidance calling for a decline of 2 to 5% which includes a backdrop of the broader home improvement market falling 5 to 10%. Um, so, you know, they reaffirmed this back at their investor day a couple of months ago, so not a whole lot of new um, news from this release. They did confirm that there's still caution among consumers and that big ticket discretionary projects are still under a little bit of pressure. Forget big tech. One of the stories of the year in the equity market has been this rip-roaring rally in the home builders. Drew, Lita and I were just talking about how frozen this housing market is in America. Drew, can you put some numbers on that? Just how frozen are things at the moment? Yeah, so you, if you look at the existing home market, um, sales are down more than 30% from their peak. I looked at the 30-year the mortgage rate before I came on this morning, and we're at seven and a quarter percent. So, I mean, that's kind of startling. And just to give you some perspective of how out of whack rates and prices seem, um, home prices would have to fall somewhere around 35% in order for monthly payments relative to incomes to fall back to trend levels. Now, we don't think that's going to happen. Um, the main reason is because the market is frozen. There's no inventory in the existing home market, and that's really what's put the builders in a unique situation. They've been able to bring new product to market. They've been able to help customers make their monthly payments work by offering rate buy-downs. So they've kind of been in the sweet spot with higher rates, which is something we, you know, we and others didn't really expect coming into this year. Bear with me, Drew. But immediately I start thinking, does this mean that when the Fed cuts rates, or if they've cut rates, maybe they're going to hold rates here for a very long time, most people expect them rates to go down, that home builders will sell off, that that will actually reduce some of the proposition that they offer at a time where you start to see a little bit more loosening in the housing market? 
So it's an interesting question, and, and the reason I said that they're uniquely positioned is because we think they could benefit in the current environment where rates are around seven and they're buying them down to five and a half. But if rates fall back to five and a half percent naturally, you've expanded the buyer pool, so it in increases mobility. So we think even in that environment, builders can still do well. I think the biggest risk, and it's not something we're seeing now, is that you get more stress in the labor market and unemployment starts to spike. That's where you would start to see pressures on home prices and more supply coming to market because there's forced selling activity. Um, that's just something we haven't had to this point. Home builders have also been in a sweet spot because you've seen lumber prices come in. And from Home Depot's earnings, that's been actually a headwind for them. That's been a problem. They've actually seen margins come in uh, with some of their supplies and their sales increase not able to be passed along as much. How much is that kind of one of the variables that can back up a home builder or not if you start to see lumber prices go back up? Yeah. Yeah, so right now, profitability for the builders in terms of gross margin has benefited from the, the fall in lumber prices. We expect that to continue um, over the near term, but they have started to take back higher, and that, you know, that could add some pressure to margins alongside the increased use of sales incentives. So it's certainly something to watch because obviously, as you would expect, lumber is the biggest component of a house. When, Drew, do you expect mortgage rates, as you mentioned, seven and a quarter, seven and a half percent, if you look at bank rate, when will that actually trickle out into valuations in a more material way? Are we just basically saying that because of the term structure, it's not going to have the ramifications that anyone expected it to have? Yeah, it's certainly an interesting dynamic that's that's taken shape. And I think the reason that higher rates aren't having an impact on, on home prices and the valuation of houses is because there's no supply. In, in order for price to see, to see a dramatic decline, you'd have to have that forced selling activity, which would be associated with an economic recession and rising unemployment. Um, we've got very well-heeled borrowers out there. We haven't seen those exotic loans this cycle. So we have good borrowers. They're locked into low fixed rates. So there's really no reason um, for them to be forced to sell absent a broader economic recession. Uh, Drew, can you give me that number again for those that missed it? What do housing prices need to fall by to go back to trend repayment levels? So in the existing home market, home prices would have to fall about 35% in order to for that monthly payment relative to income to kind of fall back to those trend levels we talked about. 35%. Drew, thank you. Drew running there of Bloomberg Intelligence. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.